House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, you are back in the House of Mystery, and of course, if you're in the House of Mystery, I'm Al Warren. Now, um, on the other side of the country is the messy Mr. Rose Martino. <laughs> Shouldn't we... Um, should we- Use another flower, like oh. maybe daffodil. <laughs> I could, I could be Daffy Dave. No, yeah, Daffy. Oh, I, I, Daffy Dave. I like that. I like that. You like the, that? The comments on Rose Martino is kind of good. See, I got rid of the Dave <laughs> completely. It sounds <sighs> like you could be a singer. Yeah. You know, but Mr. Rose Martino. You know, you I am. You can mind you, that was in the old '60s and stuff. Right? <laughs> be, I don't know if it goes so well now, but no. I'm trying. I'm trying to make you a star here. I am. <laughs> oh, you're already a star. I'm already one. Oh, yeah. I forgot. No. Well, then the show's yours. I've got to go. Um, take care. <laughs> Let me know how it goes today. You know, um, you guys can have a good conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway. Oh, I'm terrible. Um, well, anyway, from the smoke-filled uh, country of Canada, um, now we've got a uh, an interesting guest, I'll say, Um really good crime fiction writer and uh, you won't want to miss this so on the line we have the great Anne Apptaker thank you for being here thank you very much for inviting me very happy to be here we'll see if you say that at the end of the show <laughs> I reserve judgment yeah. okay let's put it back okay <laughs> well there we go so listen before we get into the books um, this is the first time you've been on the show so who is Anne like where, where do you come from and, and how did you become a writer Anne is a native New Yorker, and uh, very proudly so. Uh, how did I become a writer? Well, for years and years and more years and years uh, that I care to discuss, I was a curator and art writer for museums and galleries. And uh, there was, in back of my head, I always wanted to be a writer, particularly a crime fiction and mystery fiction writer. Um, and eventually I did so. Now, interesting, I find that the, the two worlds, the world of arranging art exhibitions and the world of writing, are very similar in that as a curator and an exhibition organizer, what I was doing, of course, was creating a world. And that's exactly what I do as a writer, whereas before I did it with uh, physical images, you know, paintings or sculptures or videos or what have you, now I do it with words. Um, and so I became a writer because that's ultimately what I really wanted to do and uh, finally just jumped in and did it, left the museum and gallery world after a million years, and now I'm a writer full-time. You look pretty good for a million years old. I do. Well, it's, you know, it's I've had work. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you'd have to. I mean, you can't look that good without... <laughs> You know, I, I've taken it's, it's, the secret is the bathroom plunger. You know, the good it's suction and it just lifts everything up and it saves an awful lot of money. Forget the doctors. The bathroom plunger is is you know youth's great um, uh, great friend. I make sure it's a clean one. That's old, <laughs> especially these days. Yeah. I wash it for twenty seconds without question. Yeah, mm. and then I put a mask on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I find with writers and writing, um, you have to put yourself out there. 
right? Uh, I mean, uh, you're kind of oh, yeah. you're kind of it being vulnerable in a sense when you write something and and have it published for the whole world. And nowadays, because people can comment so easily to you now, you know, absolutely. And so so you're exposed to a lot. So when when that happens, um, you know, you feel a little bit vulnerable. So how does it? I don't know how, but what is it that actually um, gave you the courage to actually go, yeah, I'm going to do this? Wow, courage. Hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not sure. Well, I, I'm not blathering, aren't I? Well, if you, now that you mention it in terms of courage, I'd have to agree with you now, you know, five books and several short stories later. At the time that I started writing, I really didn't think of it as courage. It was something that I really wanted to do, but I found out very quickly when I did start writing how difficult it is. If somebody had told me how difficult it is to make a compelling story and put it on the page, I probably would have been terrified and walked away. But once I started doing it, it was addictive. You know, it it just, it's something that I really felt I had to do. Um, so I did. Um, so the courage part came after I realized that it was absolutely a terrifying existence and you just plow on. Yeah. No, and I understand that totally. Um, okay. And so, and, and you get into this um, crime fiction era. Uh, how, how are you drawn to the murder mystery? Like what was it about murder and mystery that you chose to write that? I like reading it. I mean, I read a full, you know, spectrum of, of books as most as most writers and, for that matter, readers do. But I I just simply adore crime fiction and murder mysteries. I like how compelling they are. And when you're dealing with issues, a story of life and death, you can't get more compelling than that. Um, and I, when I realized that I, what I really wanted to do was write, was to create a world with words. And create images through through verbal means. Um, it was I had this character in my head of Cantor Gold for years, and she's the protagonist in in the Cantor Gold series and in the newest Murder in Gold. Um, and she originally started out as a private investigator, <clears throat> excuse me, on the right side of the law. But um, I actually did work for a private investigations firm for a while. And I got to see the criminal justice system, you know, pretty close at hand and lost, uh, lost faith in it. I saw that it was not, it is, uh, you didn't get the justice that we think we deserve in the criminal justice system. And so I realized that she had to be a criminal in order for her to retain her honor because she is, the books takes place in the 1950s, and at that time, it was illegal to be an out uh, gay person, and she is very much an out and dapper, well-dressed gay person. She refuses to live in the closet. So in order for her to keep her integrity and to keep her personal freedom, she had to live on the outside of the law. So between seeing the corruption of the criminal justice system and knowing what her own personal situation would have been at that time, I realized that a crime story and how she operates in the underworld and how she thrives in the underworld 
um, it, that, that's the milieu it had to be in. It was not going to work for me as a writer in my sense of justice. It wasn't going to work if she was on the right side of the law as an investigator or as a police you know, operative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'd be too boring, too. It would be. There's, no, there's nothing more boring than someone. There's yeah. nothing more boring than someone who thinks the law works for them. Yeah, yeah, that's Dudley Do Right. That's not. <laughs> uh, so, but that's that's interesting. So, so you kind of talk about Cantor Gold uh, as someone mm-hmm. that's been in your mind and been with you for a long time. So, yeah. w- where do you think she comes from? Is she is she really kind of you? In a, diff- in a different sense or you of how you want want to be or didn't want to be or um, how does Cantor relate to who you are? Well, I guess, you know, every writer will tell you the same thing, that there's a little bit of us in all of our characters. So I guess Cantor being the main character, and of course the books are written in first person, so she's on every page. So I'm on every page, so to speak. Um, she's not me in the day-to-day sense, but I suppose in the mythical sense, she's me in extremis. You know, she is the honorable and courageous person I wish I were and am not. Um, I find my courage through writing her. Um, she is, you know, the person who, she's not Dudley Do-Right, but she does have her sense of justice and honor uh, even though she lives in a down and dirty world and she's not afraid to play down and dirty. But um, she is able to speak for me and hopefully for many other people uh, in in living a life that, that she pushes back against a world that wants to oppress her. And even for people who are not gay or, or members of marginalized communities, the world oppresses all of us to some extent. And Candor Gold um, pushes back. So she speaks on behalf of everyone who doesn't want to be pushed around, whether, whether they are in the dominant culture or a marginalized culture. Nevertheless, every one of us gets pushed around to some extent. And Candor Gold says no. She won't be pushed around. Now, when you write Cantor Gold, um, do you hear her voice in your head? Do you have an inner monologue? I, 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 I hear voices. So that's <laughs> so oh, yes. Oh, I abs- oh, yes, I absolutely hear her. She's crystal clear in my head, oh, for certain. Yeah, that, that's no two ways about that. Mm, both nutballs, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> Insane. <laughs> Insane people hearing voices walking around. As long as they don't start telling you to do weird things, it's, I guess. It's well, they already do. They do. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's why you stay in the basement. We don't that's you true. Know. Well, I mean, writing is a kind of schizophrenia, I believe, of the hearing of voices. I mean, you know, when I'm writing and when any author writes a book, it, it, when you're really deep inside of it, it's very real. So the voices of all the characters, not, not only of Cantor, but of all the other characters in the book, they are very real to me at the time that I'm writing them. Um, and when I'm writing them, it's like living in an alternative, or not even so alternative, it is the reality of that moment. So, yeah, I guess writers are, you know, um, f- functional schizophrenics, is that the way to put it? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Mm. Well, and and so that that's interesting. So, how do you build characters around Cantor? So, is, uh, do you find them from 
uh, actual people you know or people you've seen, or is this are they, these characters come to you as well? You know, it's a little bit of all of it. Um, for instance, I'll give you I'll give you an example. One of the characters who appears in all of the books uh, is a woman named Mom Scheinbaum, Esther Mom Scheinbaum, and she's based on two people, two very real people. One of them, it was a historic figure in the uh, late 19th century named uh, Frederica Marm Mandelbaum, who was a fence of stolen goods. And she was never caught. Uh, as a matter of fact, Alan, she escaped to Canada. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, in late, you know, when, when it looked like they, she, like it looked, when it looked like she was going to be taken down for her crimes, she escaped and lived on her millions in Canada until her death. Um, so Mom Scheinbaum in my books is based on her, you know, an updated version of Mar Mandelbaum. Uh, so, you know, as far as the, the reality of the character, the personality of Mom Scheinbaum, okay, everybody, get ready, here it comes, an author's deepest secrets. The personality of Mom Scheinbaum is based on my mother. Mm. <laughs> so now when you read the book, boy, you get to know some of my issues. <laughs> <laughs> some. And, that's, and I've heard from a lot of people who like Mon Scheinbaum that they're in complete sympathy with, you know, they have mothers of similar personality. Let's just put it that way. Uh, uh, yes and no. I'm very fortunate. Um, there, there exists a, a, a number of legacy LGBTQ publishers. Uh, Bywater, who's currently publishing me, uh, Bold Strokes, who published my earlier work, uh, Bella Books, uh, Flashpoint Press, Amble Press. There's a number of them. Um, years ago, that wasn't the case. It was more difficult to be published uh, uh, as writing gay stories, LGBTQ stories. Now it's a little less difficult. And now even the mainstream press is starting to notice um, uh, that, that stories about gay people are just as popular and just as solid and just as exciting as uh, stories by heterosexual uh, authors or heterosexual stories. So for me, it wasn't all that difficult um, Cantor was, was, was picked up by, originally by both Stokes books, uh, fairly quickly. And now she's being taken over by Bywater books, which I'm also very happy about. Um, so I really can't talk, I really can't address the notion of, of finding it terribly difficult. It's, my journey wasn't especially difficult. So I just consider myself very fortunate in that respect. But I'm fortunate because there are these legacy LGBTQ publishers. Hmm. And, and so does this, when you, when you tell a story uh, like Murder and Gold, um, it, it, do you intentionally put a subtext or some sort of a, um, a meaning that underlies in the story that you hope people get when they read it? Well, because the books take place in the 50s, it, it has to be there. But, it, it, you know, let's not forget it's a crime story. It's a murder mystery. It's a whodunit. So um, I want the readers to be engaged at that level and go through this adventure to find out who done it. On the other hand, because Cantor lives at a time when leading her life as a gay person, never mind even her, her true criminal activities, but her personal life 
was considered criminal. She has to address that in the books, but it's not at the forefront of the story. It informs her personality and why she's a criminal. I mean, the reason that she's chosen to be an art thief as opposed to a curator or an art dealer is because she figures, look, if the world is going to label her as a criminal just for being alive, that she'll be really a criminal. She doesn't owe the law any loyalty. So that's how I address that. Now, as the books move through in the 1950s, she starts to bump up against the very early stirrings of what was then called the homosexual rights movement. And you get the most rudimentary inklings of that in Murder in Gold in the current book. And it continues a little bit through the next book that's coming out next year. Now, the thing for Cantor, having lived her life as a criminal and thriving in that world and pushing back against a world that wants to bury her and kill her or jail her, the thing for Cantor is, on the one hand, of course, she would be sympathetic to any efforts to stop the oppression of gay people. On the other hand, she realizes, what kind of personal freedom do I have to give up to join a movement? She has to ask herself, does she want to join the mainstream world? What's the tradeoff for her of becoming a mainstream person in the future, as opposed to maintaining her identity as an outsider? So while these books are not political, just the fact that they're historical, she has to bump up against those questions. But I don't want readers to feel as if I'm writing this political polemic. These are straight up, you should forgive the expression, crime stories and mystery fiction that fortunately I have a number of heterosexual readers who really enjoy Cantor's adventures. And women in particular, gay or straight, like the idea of this woman at the time taking her life into her own hands and making her own decisions. So it's not overtly political, but I suppose I'd have to say that her attitude about being a member of an oppressed minority informs who she is and what she does. It's interesting, you know, so many parts to it. Throughout the, this is book five now, and throughout these, when you do a book series, do you find it difficult to remember the things that the character goes through, like how they develop? It's like, say, for when it started in book one compared to now, you know, Cantor's probably changed a lot. There's a lot of changes that have happened to her. How do you kind of keep track of that, or is that an issue for you? It's not terribly much of an issue. I mean, I have notes from the previous books, which I, you know, I keep. So as I'm writing each book, if there's some element in her personality or style or situation that I might not remember, I can always check back to my notes. But I can't really say that it's a real problem. Most of the time, I do remember. And as far as Cantor changing a lot, well, she changes a little from each book because the books, you know, go through a period of time. So she ages a little bit from one year to the next. But as a person, 
she she changes only in this in the sense that something where something new confronts her she has to adjust to it and as i just mentioned as she keeps bumping up against you know the early homosexual rights movement um that may or may not change her depending on how she feels she fits into that movement or doesn't fit into that movement she doesn't know yet and frankly i don't either i'm wondering um you know i've had characters kind of just show up in in some stories and stuff and i'm just wondering have you uh you know uh, have you ever had a character who has done anything to uh, surprise you oh always oh my goodness always in every single book and it's not just a character they all surprise me um at some point they take over writing the book and they they surprise the hell out of me um and to tell you the truth i don't always know who done it who's the murderer until cantor does that's how much the story and the people in it keep surprising me when they 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 lead their own lives almost independently of me the only thing of me that they demand is that i hear them i listen to them and i understand them enough to give their words on a page where, where do you see this going like how many ta- how many books or how many chapters of her life um do you see this going for well book 5 is out now that's murdering gold book 6 is coming out next year and that one will be called hunting gold I see the series running through the early 1960s uh, and ending, the last book will end, will sort of revolve around um, an event that happened in the early 1960s. And no, it's not the presidential assassination, (laughs) Um, but something that I won't give away, but that has particular resonance for Cantor. Um, So the book will end in early 1960s, the series. Now, how many books between now and then I'm not 100% certain. The current book takes place in 1954. The next one next year is in 1955. Um, though they, the, the series doesn't always go one year to the next. You know, for instance, the first book was in 1949, then 50, but then it jumped to 1952. So there might be a jump in there. So I don't know how many books between now and the end. It's, I, I, I really, it depends on how many stories Cantor feels she has to tell. She's got to be showing up in a disco outfit. Come on. Okay, in the early 1960s, she, she might. It, you know, I, it depends. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things Cantor likes to do now in the 1950s is, uh, you know, her, her great stress reliever, the place where she finds a place to relax is in a gay bar, the Green Door Club, and that's particularly resonant for readers now because a lot of the dyke bars are gone. You know, they're just there's so few of them left, and some cities have none at all. Um, but they were prevalent. They were, you know, they were hopping in the, in the 1950s. And Cantor's favorite place is the Green Door Club. So for younger readers who don't remember, who don't have experience of the of the great dyke clubs of the 50s some of which were very glamorous where you know you had tuxedos and and organdy dresses and you know jewelry and all kinds of marvelous uh clothing uh very elegant wear uh in some of these places um these books will bring that experience to the reader so whether she goes to a 60s disco or not, well, we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> it's groovy. Yeah, you, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I miss wearing the big gowns and 
<laughs> good old days. Now everybody wears sweatpants. Jeez. Yeah, I know. That's terrible. And one one of one of my characters, Cantor's lawyer. Now, let me preface this by saying not all of the characters in the books are gay. Cantor's gay, but others are straight. You know, she she works in the criminal underworld, and so not everybody's gay. There's straight people, and you know, there's just sort of this cross section of people. And one of the characters that appears in several of the books is her lawyer, Winston Maximovich, Winnie Maximovich. And he's, if you can picture Sidney Green Street, that's Winnie. Um, but he is, you know, when he's in court, he's, of course, very elegantly dressed and so on. But in his closet are a number of enormous, you know, tent size gowns <laughs> that he's famous for. Well, there you go. So picture Sydney Green Street in a, in a gown, and there you have it. There you go. That's the way we like it. <laughs> well, although uh, I think it's important to note that although uh, this is a series, you you can read this uh, this series in any order. That these are all standalone uh, novels. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can certainly read them in any order you like. I mean, I would love it if people started from the beginning, and you know pay good money to, <laughs> to read all the books. But if you want to start with Murder and Go, that's absolutely fine. You will not be, you will, I, I don't leave you out of anything. This is, it's, you can start anywhere. Oh, please. People, buy them all. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> they know my attitude. They listen to me all the time. So they, they know what I say about that. Come on. Be so cheap. Um, <laughs> now, you know, but it, okay, so when you do something like this, and it's, it's a time piece, so, you know, you say you started in 49, and you're kind of going through the 50s and 60s, kind of that idea. Because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I know in writing, when you do something in a period of time, you have to be very accurate with how people portray themselves, how they act, the phrases they say, how they talk mm -hmm. to each other. It has to fit the time because there's a lot of, you know, or it doesn't sound right. Um, so how long does that take you to go through that? And, and even the events going on around them in the world, like that, that must take a lot of time and research. Well, it does. Um, fortunately, the 1950s are kind of, you know, recent history. So I have, and I still continue to use a number of sources. First of all, um, in the beginning, and I still do, I spent a lot of time at the New York Public Library, uh, the New York Historical Society, and I used to spend a lot of time at the New York City Archives. So I was able to research the period and what it looked like, uh, the, the stories, you know, the newspaper stories, the history, the politics, everything that was going on then. But the 1950s, um, it was, you know, not all that long ago. And uh, I was able to talk to people who were around them and I could hear the way they spoke, you know, parents and all of that, and you know, aunts and uncles, uh, neighbors and so on. Um, plus, you know, there's... Uh, uh, the Internet and YouTube are terrific for old movies. Mm. And if you want to hear what people sounded like in the 1950s, watch an old movie from the 1950s. Or on YouTube, you can hear an interview of something or a radio show or, you know, TV program or what have you. Um, so all in all, I was able to get the language and the rhythm of the language uh, really firsthand by listening to people who spoke it. And, you know, thank God for YouTube, absolutely, mm. oh, my goodness. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. There's a lot of good information 
on the internet that comes with the bad too. But you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff if you if you look for it. You know, if you use it. I mean, you know, people in the fifties didn't speak all that differently from the way we do today, but some of the vernacular, some of the slang, yeah. was somewhat different. And so those were the things that I, you know, that I needed to pick up. I had to be very careful that Cantor not sound, in, you know, the 21st century contemporary. That's really where I had to be careful. Um, but I had an abundance of material for the 1950s. Yeah, just watch, uh, you know, uh, one of those silly shows. It's just a groovy and. Uh... <laughs> well, that's that's late. That's the 60s. She's before the groovy period. Oh, before the groovy. <laughs> I love Lucy time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was I love Lucy time exactly. Yeah. So. You know, it was more beatnik kind of stuff. Uh, and, she, you know, that, that's that's the kind of slang. But the underworld had its own slang. Um, but it didn't sound like ours today at all. Yeah. You know, she would not be moving. What, what is it you want people to feel about Cantor? So, like, as the main character running through the series, how do you want people to, to think about her? Um, well, I suppose it depends on the reader. I've had readers literally fall in love with her. Um, I've had readers who, as I met earlier, just enjoy her independence. Uh, I've had readers who like that she can get, you know, physical, uh, you know, she can use a gun. <laughs> uh, she can, you know, she can physically see herself through a fight. Um, so how do I want people to feel about Cantor? I guess all of those things. I want Cantor to, I want people to feel about Cantor the way that they need to feel about Cantor. Um, because I, I really do have a sense that she speaks for an awful lot of people, gay or straight, that she lives her life really on behalf of people or that, you know, her story is told on behalf of, of everybody who doesn't want to get pushed around. And so I want people to think of Cantor in a way as their personal hero in a, in a, in a very intimate way, not in a, you know, superhero, Superman, the Flash, you know, that kind of it's Wonder Woman kind of thing flying around, but as a very down-to-earth, street-level, personal hero of their own um, who, who can speak for them at some level, either romantically or if you're gay or, or just in terms of justice uh, or just in terms of taking life by the horns and just living it. Oh, for sure. Oh, my goodness, yes. Oh, absolutely. Not only the, the time period, I mean, the 50s were very, very rich, both in the light and the dark. So, I mean, that's the whole period of film noir. Um, so, yes, the 50s are very much part, you know, they are sort of a, a character. Another character is the city of New York at that time. Um, uh, and Cantor, one of the places, one of the things that she takes solace in when life gets very tough, you know, when life gets more dangerous than it should be, she finds uh, solace in the city itself. She's so much part of it. She is really part of the brickwork that she finds comfort in the hustle and bustle and beauty and the neon and the tall buildings and the, the lights and the streets. She takes real comfort in the city, which for her is her companion. So it is very much a character. 
in the books mm. for certain. Interesting. So it's almost like a, a friend to her in a sense. Oh, uh, oh, mm. for sure. It is her best friend. Yeah. yeah. It's her family. She thinks of just about everybody in the city of New York as her family, even uh, even to some extent, you know, the bad guys who may want to kill her or the cops who want to jail her. Um, you know, she, there's no love loss between her and the cops, but she recognizes they are part of the fabric of this city that she loves and that loves her. Huh. It's pretty interesting when you think about it that way. When you when you when you've written these books, now you've been this is the fifth one. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's changed you? Yes, I think it has. Um, in subtle ways, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure. And here I'm a writer, and I'm about to tell you I'm not sure how I can express something. <laughs> but it's it's so internal. I'm aware of of a change in me. Um, I think because I started out not knowing what I was doing, you know, I just said, I'm going to write. Even before I started to write Cantor, I wrote a short story and submitted it for publication and it was published. I I almost dropped dead right there on the spot. And um, uh, I'm less fearful about writing, you know, I find I can do it, and I, I, I love doing it, and I can express my feelings about the world through my writing, and so it's increased my internal confidence in a way. Um, I'm far, I, I feel, I, I suppose in some ways I feel proud of myself for making a major change in my life, going from one career to another, and succeeding at, at some level, um, and that, you know, what I do affects other people's lives and that I hear from these people. And that has an, excuse me, that has had an effect on my internal sense of self, um, both in terms of my sense of satisfaction, but also a sense of responsibility. Um, so, and I have a different and greater sense of responsibility than I had before I started writing. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's about as much as I can, as much as I can express. The other things that I feel about the changes in me are really almost inexpressible, but they're there. Mm. So, do you like having the the current interaction that we have with 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 people that buy your books or listen to us, for instance? Do you like having that instant access? To, is it good for you all the way around? Generally speaking, yeah. Um, most of the people who get in touch with me through Facebook Messenger. Um, uh, are very kind. You know, they, they write to tell me they, they enjoy the books and they thank me for writing them, or they might share an experience they've had uh, that they think might be interesting to me as, as somebody who's created Cantor Gold or the other short stories that I've written, you know, that are not about Cantor. So that's quite wonderful. I mean, hearing from fans who who tell you they appreciate what you do, you know, that's just so, <laughs> it really builds you up. Uh, now and then you get, you know, you get something from somebody who's less than polite, shall we say? <laughs> but that has been uh, not the norm. Usually I do get things that are very um, rewarding to read. Uh, they're very complimentary. Uh, and I love it. Um, so, yes, to answer your question, yes, I do like hearing from people who read my work, whether it's the Cantor Gold books or the short stories or the novella that I have out there or whatever. It's, it really is quite wonderful. 
And knowing that you've, that you've touched people, that you've given a little, you know, richness to their lives for a few hours in their day, that's just wonderful. I mean, it's also, you really, it really is a responsibility. My goodness, that, that's the scary part, I guess. You don't want to let people down. After writing fiction, uh, you know, whether it's novel, short story, do you have a way to decompress or do you even need to decompress? Can you just move on to the next thing? Well, it's a little bit of both. Um, <laughs> um, for instance, when I finished um, when I finished Murder in Gold, I was contracted for the next book, so I had to just I just had to you know get right on that. And I recently sent the manuscript into my publisher to Bywater, so uh, there wasn't a whole lot of time. You know, when you're writing on a deadline, when I you know the short stories that I write and the novella that I wrote, uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot of time to decompress. But when I do take the time to decompress, like after my writing day, late at night before I go to bed, um, I love watching movies. I'll just mm. get lost in a, and it doesn't even have to be a good movie. <laughs> you know, some some escapist fare that I can just leave the world that I've created and jump into somebody else's world that they've created and and have fun there for a while. So you know, reading somebody else's book or. Um, or mostly watching a movie uh, uh, really is my decompression. That and ice cream. Mm. <laughs> do, do you ever try to uh, try to put yourself in your character's place? Um, so when your character's um, facing some sort of turmoil or some sort of thing that's going to happen, uh, so do you try to figure it out by getting into that situation yourself? Absolutely. In fact, I write every character from that situation. I'll tell you something. When I first started writing, I was actually living in San Francisco. Uh, I was doing art projects out there in my curatorial days. Um, and I, it was then that I was thinking that I really did want to write. Uh, and I wanted to write crime and mystery fiction, but I had no idea where to start. I had ideas, you know, I had this character of Kendrick Gold in mind, but I had no idea where to start. So, as it happened, um, uh, UC Berkeley had a continuing education class on writing mysteries. And it was um, uh, taught by a very good writer whose work I enjoyed, Shelley Singer. So I signed up for it really quick uh, to say, well, maybe I'll, you know, at least learn how to start, you know, with chapter one. I mean, I had no idea. And Shelley said something that opened up the entire process for me. In a way, I can't even remember a lot of the stuff that we did in the class afterwards because this one thing she said opened up the whole thing and it's where I write from, from that day to this. And what she said was that writing a novel, writing a narrative fiction, whether it's a novel or a screenplay or whatever it is, it is not the story of the plot. In a way, it's not even the story of the characters. It's the story of the emotion of the characters. And I understood what she meant in that every interaction that people have, even right now with the three of us uh, through Zoom here, is, is, comes from an emotional place. Now, it doesn't have to be a high emotion of screaming or crying or laughing or a low emotion of sadness or whatever. Every action and reaction has its moment of, of, of emotion. You're reacting to me emotionally, 
and I'm reacting to you, to your questions, my answers come from the emotional moment of whatever it is that I want to feel. Once I understood that, I was able to get inside all of the characters as I write them and write what their emotional response is to something that was said or a situation that they're facing. So in other words, I'm writing from inside the emotional lives of every single character. Uh, now, that's, I don't have to tell you what's going on because that's ridiculous. I have to write it in such a way that, that the reader feels what the character is feeling. And the only way that they can feel that is if I feel it. So, yes, I write from inside the emotional experience of every single one of the characters, which goes back to me saying that writing is a form of controlled schizophrenia. <laughs> <laughs> so does that mean that um, you've had uh, an ex-one-night stand be murdered? <laughs> Well, there is a little something called imagination. Ah, you see? There we go. Now we're, fi now we're finding the truth here. Mm. Oh. But I can get into my characters and, you know, to the extent of saying how, like, yes, in this book, one of her one-night stands right off the bat, you know, is murdered. How would, what does it feel like? to walk out of your apartment and see that your, you know, five minutes ago, one night stand is dead on your doorstep. Um, and so I have to dig down and sort of assume, in a way, feel something uh, so that the reader knows what Cantor is feeling when she discovers this. Mm. So were you ever caught when you killed that woman or? <laughs> I, just, I just thought, you know, maybe I'd throw that out there. <laughs> Exclusive. Well. <laughs> well. Mm. And, and, you know, funny, do you ever look back at some of your work, like your earlier work, and feel like you would like to rewrite it? Oh, yeah. A couple of shit. Not so much with the Cantor books. I, I feel like I'm on pretty sure footing there. Except, you know, maybe a scene here or a sentence there or something, but not really. But some of the short, some of my earliest short stories, like that first short story that I wrote that uh, that was in the uh, Fedora anthology series um, years ago. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it was a good story. Well, it was good enough to be published, but not terribly long ago, I had occasion to read it, and it made my skin crawl. <laughs> the, the, you know, the plot was fine, the characters were hunky-dory, but I really wanted to change some of the writing. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, some of the early short stories make me want to just rip them up and start all over again, <laughs> but too late, they're out there, published for all the world to see. Do you have any uh, influences that might be surprising the fans? Well, gee, uh, hmm, that's a good question. I think, you know, so many people assume that my influences are the film noirs of the 50s and the noir writing, you know, the golden age of American crime fiction, Raymond Chandler, uh, James Kane, and so on, and that would be correct. Uh, as far as influences that would surprise them, gosh, I'm really not 100% sure how to answer that. Well, well, okay, try this one in a way. Um, in all of my research in reading, um, reading articles from the 1950s, one of the, one of the columnists that I read quite a bit of was Walter Winchell, oh, yeah. who, after reading his biography, turned out to be a real son of a bitch, and I would not want, <laughs> I would not want to break bread with him. However, boy, could he write. 
his columns about Broadway and show business people in the 40s and 50s were some of the finest examples of bon mots, you know, bon mots of, 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 of making words just sing in a way that is strictly an American vernacular. I mean, one comes to mind, he described someone who was as sophisticated as a monocle. Um, I mean, you know, this is great writing. So, you know, people who know about Walter Winchell and would realize that I would probably loathe the man personally, he was really just awful as he grew, especially as he grew older. Um, Nevertheless, his use of words, his sense of vocabulary, his sense of the rhythm of the English language and the plasticity of the English language, um, that has, his writings had a great effect on me, and that might surprise people. Or maybe not, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> you don't listen to Motley Crue then, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, the thing, um, when you say that, um, you know, especially in today's, today's society, um, so, you're, so you don't have a problem disliking someone but liking their work. Yeah, you have to separate it. I mean, sometimes I really have to ask myself, do I, well, I'll give you an example. I, you know, on the one hand, yes, I well, I would read Walter Winchell, but then again, he's dead, so how much more harm can he do? You right, know, not, right. not much. Um, but I do have to ask myself sometimes, do I, you know, do I want to put money in so-and-so's pocket? And, you know, I, there's a line somewhere. There are some you know, it depends on the transgression, I suppose, or, you know, you know, how distasteful is it to me? How, uh, you know, for instance, I will not put money in the pocket of Mel Gibson. I mean, he and I just parted company with the anti-Semitism and the whole thing. We're just done. Right. And I will put money in his pocket. You know, there are others that I, you know, that are real fence sitters for me. I have to think about it. Um, that I have to admit, yeah, they said or done some really questionable things, but, you know, was it a mistake? Do people grow? You know, where are they? What, what's their feelings now? Um, so I can't just black and white blanket say, I will never read this person, their work again. I will never see their movies again. The only person who I absolutely say that about is, um, is Mel Gibson. So if he's listening, he's going to blackmail me all over the place. <laughs> Sorry about that, Mel, but, you know, you reap what you sow. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's current, so, you know, maybe in a couple of hundred years, people won't really um, pay much attention. They won't really know what the person is yeah, like. Yeah, right? you know, it needs time. I mean, you know, 50 years from now, if I'm still alive and kicking, maybe I will watch Road Warrior again, because it was a brilliant film, and, you know, um, and he was brilliant in it. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very hard for me to say, and I suppose it's also because, you know, if people look real hard at my life, I mean, I'd like to think that I've led as, an, as honorable a life as I possibly could, but we all have skeletons, I'm sure, and um, people might not like my, you know, my point of view. People, if they read the Cantor Gold books, might find her, her, you know, obstinacy uh, and, uh, her willingness to push back or her hatred for cops or whatnot, they might find that objectionable. So I can't really dictate to people how they should feel about things, and I don't want them dictating to me how I should feel about it. 
Um, but, you know, yes, do I have to ask myself sometimes whether I can support so-and-so's work? And it's, uh, it depends. You know, my only answer is it depends on, on who and what and what their transgression was and how they, you know, how they've grown or not grown from it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not for me to judge, I, except for my own personal self. I can, I can decide to watch someone's movies or not, but I can't throw that out to other people. Um, they have to make up their own minds because I'm in no position to, to judge other people's points of view. Well, yeah, especially with all the pictures we've got. I mean, I... Yes, yes. Well, there's, you know, like I said, as long as they show my good side, yeah. uh, you know, I'm good with it. Uh, and make sure that when you publish the pictures, make sure you put a picture of all the books in with it. Yeah, so, wow, you know, perfect. You know, yeah, yeah. Marketing is marketing. Yeah, it all helps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, well, speaking of that, so now, how do how do people find you? Do you have a website? Do you have a location that you'd prefer people to go if they want to find out more about you? Well, I'm most easily found on uh, Facebook, uh, you know, Ann Aptaker author, Instagram, Ann Aptaker Twitter, and you know, at Ann Aptaker. I have a WordPress blog site. I don't have a you know real website yet. Um, I keep dabbling around in it but it hasn't really come to fruition yet but they can find me you know google me and i'm all over the place uh, but if anybody wants to get in touch with me best way is through facebook messenger always happy to take a look and see what people have to say about the books or what they want to talk to me about wow you're brave well we'll have that uh, i am <laughs> we'll have that on our website as well so people listening can do one click and find you and uh hunt you down sure I uh, was in Paris last year when the pandemic hit. Um, however, um, my original idea when I went to Paris, I was scheduled to be there for three months, and I really did live in a garret <laughs> in Paris overlooking the rooftops of Paris, which is sort of the iconic view. Well, my original intent was to write for a few hours in the morning, and then I had friends there, see friends and see Paris, you know, do Paris and travel a bit and so on. It was a trip of a lifetime for me that I'd sacrificed a lot to make happen. Well, um, then the pandemic hit, and France, like everywhere else, closed down. So what I did, you know, my my uh, th th writing this current book uh, became my sort of only reason to exist to get up in the morning. Uh, so I spent, instead of four hours a day writing, I spent all day writing, except if I, you know, went out for groceries, which you were permitted to do to, you know, buy the household needs and that sort of thing. Um, so the, the first two weeks that I was there, there was no lockdown, and I was running around with my friends and just writing a bit in the morning. And then the last two weeks I was there, also a great number of the restrictions were lifted and we could go out. But for the middle two months that I was there, I was locked away in a garret in Paris writing. So it was not torture for me. Um, the only thing that made it really difficult was what it made difficult for everybody, and that was the reality of the pandemic. Uh, in Paris, being a big city, we could hear the ambulance sirens, you know, day and night, and that was terrifying. You know, people were getting sick. The French were dying left and right, just like here in America and around the world. So that those the sounds of the sirens of the ambulances was a you know a terrifying reminder of what we were all going through. 
But locked away in my garret in Paris writing is what all writers dream of doing. Mm. And so there I was writing in a garret in Paris. What could be more romantic, I suppose? <laughs> well, did, but you, did you, did you find that when stressful things like, you know, all the weird stuff the last couple of years uh, going on and, and uh, including the pandemic, when things are stressful or upsetting on the outside world, do you think that gets into your writing somehow? Yes, just plain yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely yes. Um, it is the place that I go to. You know, I mean, I'm build, writers build a, a world. They, they build a world we want to live in, even if, even if you're writing a book that's about mayhem and murder or horror or, you know, whatever your genre. Um, still, it's a world you're creating, which means you have more control over it. Unless, of course, like I say, the characters take over. But still, you're creating this world. And when you're writing the world, when you're writing a world, especially historic fiction, but even contemporary, you you know you write you want to write the world as it really is or was. And so there's all this research or paying attention to details. But you also can write the world as you want it to be. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I do to some extent. That's what all writers do. So when the real world gets too, too much for me, I sit down and I start writing. And it's my, it, you know, it, it helps keep my mental capacities <laughs> on steady. <laughs> it keeps me from going into that uncontrolled schizophrenia, I suppose. Right, right. You know, out there killing people. Or killing people. There's that. <laughs> yeah, that's always good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can, you know, I can kill people on the page. You know, I'm sure the other mystery writers that you've had on your show have all, uh, you know, reminded their readers uh, or friends and neighbors, be nice to me or I'll kill you on the page. You know, I, yeah. you know you, you, I can't tell you how many people on the page that I've known that I have killed on that page, left and right. Oh, there you see. Now the truth comes <laughs> out at the end of the show. You find out. I, I've, killed fa- I've, killed, I've killed family members. Yeah. I've killed people that I've known and not cared for. They're all dead on the page. So be nice to me or I'll murder you. Well, just, just remember that. We've learned a lot here today. So be careful around and she might she might take you out so and not not on a good good date or anything we're talking about or i might elevate you there's that too i might make you my lover well well there you go (laughs) mel gibson look out no um (laughs) (laughs) not happening yeah i know wrong wrong at every every level that's what for for me too and i'm gay so there you go (laughs) wrong on every category that's terrible well been a good conversation. Our time yes, indeed. Thank you. Both, thank both of you. Yeah. Now, so the book we're focusing on today, or were, were Murder and Gold, and it's the Cantor Gold Crime Series, book five. And our guest has been the author. And Aptaker, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And everybody have a marvelous day and evening and life. Thanks, Ann. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media.
archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.